This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Okay, so uh, good evening, and uh, I'd like to uh, start by thanking our uh, partners. I'm Yochanan Plesner the president of the Israel Democracy Institute. And uh, this uh, project that we're going to talk about today is uh, the the product of the collaboration between the Israel Democracy Institute based out of Jerusalem and the Rand Corporation, a smaller organization based here in in California. Um, So I'd like to thank our uh, friends from uh, Rand Corporation uh, Andy and of course uh, Brian Jenkins uh, for uh, this uh, joint work and collaboration. On our behalf, Admiral Ami Ayalon, who was also head of the Israeli Shin Bet, uh, uh, led uh, this uh, uh, project. And of course, uh, David Lubarsky, who's uh, sitting right here, was actually the visionary behind this collaboration, got us all together and said, You guys uh, uh, need to collaborate and think together and provide some fresh new thinking about uh, how uh, can liberal democracies approach this challenge of uh, asymmetric uh, warfare. Uh, for Israel, it's, uh, it's a major uh, challenge and has been so for the past, uh, for the pa- definitely over the past decade we've seen uh, m- uh, just uh, over the past decade, at least five conflicts with inconclusive uh, outcomes, many of them with Hamas, one with also with Hezbollah, changing the nature of warfare, uh, the nature of uh, the media coverage and how it affects the outcome, uh, diplomatic implications, operational, and of course, uh, international legal implications. After serving for six years in Israel's Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee, I came to realize that really the major challenge in this new type of warfare is not how much firepower you have or how much, uh, 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 what's the uh, size of your force, but rather how do you deploy it, how do you synchronize it with policy, how do you synchronize it with your partners, and if God forbid we know that probably we're going to have future conflicts, both us and other liberal democracies, we know that immediately questions of legitimacy, international law, uh, civilian casualties emerge, and 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 we need to have guidelines of how do we do that, and nevertheless still protect our values, uh, uh, and and can also achieve the political goals that can uh, protect our societies. Those are some of the challenges. Uh, we started uh, out. Uh, and we are, we are now at the end of a two-day uh, workshop and going to present some of our thoughts and some of our findings. We closely collaborate both with the multidisciplinary groups of scholars in Israel and in Rand and with practitioners both here in the U.S. and in Israel in trying to uh, help uh, deal with those challenges. Otherwise, IDI, um, just in one word, what we are focused on is... Uh, what we call a think-and-do tank based out of Jerusalem. We focus on questions of good governance and uh, government reform and structural reforms. That's one arm. And the other arm is securing Israel, the vitality of Israel's uh, liberal democratic values and institutions. We had a major, uh, I would say, struggle around the nation-state law that was uh, hurled into the Israeli public sphere now will probably uh, uh, be no longer relevant because we have an early election in Israel. And and it's our role to ensure that uh, in this tough neighborhood that we live, we still hold on to our liberal and democratic values uh, and uh, civic equality and freedom. And uh, and, and this is what we are uh, committed to. And of course, we have the effort on national security and democracy. Again, on the one hand, we need to to ensure security. On the other hand, to protect uh, the internal freedoms. We've been dealing with those challenges for at least a decade with multidisciplinary groups of scholars. And we're very proud of the collaboration uh, with Rand Corporation now. So thank you. Thanks, Johanan. I'm Andy Hohen from RAND, and I know we're getting started a little late, so I'm going to be brief. 
I want to talk for just a moment about partnership and the partnership between IDI, which we welcome, uh, and and our CMAP program uh, run by Dahlia Dasake. I think the partnership between these institutions is a hallmark of RAND, of what we do in many areas. But I think this particular partnership, a very strong one, and we're really grateful for it. And I know on behalf of Dahlia that uh, the work we've been able to do with IDI, we're, we're really, really grateful for that. As I mentioned, uh, uh, this we're drawing on the work that we've done over the last couple of days. I sat through one of the sessions this afternoon. It was a terrific, intense discussion, real issues, real topics that our respective countries are struggling with. And I think we had experts uh, both in the room, but we had uh, uh, members from the U.S. government there that were participating in the discussion. I think really, really just a terrific event. And what we're going to showcase tonight is some of what, what's on the minds. And so let me of the of the people that are that are really at the at the lead of this work. So let me just introduce briefly our our uh, speakers and our moderator. Uh, Brian Jenkins, senior advisor to the president uh, of Rand, is author of numerous books, uh, reports, and articles on terrorism related work. Probably the father of terrorism research in this country. I think I don't know of no one else who's got as much experience as long a track record with this, whose work is so empirical, whose work is so empirical, he draws on data and in his work, uh, really remarkable. Uh, Brian had a, a distinguished military career as a former gr Green Beret, uh, extensive ex experience uh, throughout that time, a long distinguished research career, and has served in a number of public uh, adv and advisory roles uh, uh, for uh, for the, uh, this nation, the United States leaders over a long time, including uh, uh, presidential appointments. Um, Admiral Ami Ayalon, uh, former director of the Israel Security Agency, as we heard before, former commander of Israel's Navy, served as a cabinet minister and member of Knesset, a remarkably, a remarkable background, remarkable experience, and I think really uh, will help illuminate our, and, and help our discussion uh, like Brian, has served in any number of capacities, received a number of uh, really distinguished awards, and we're really, really just ex excited to have him. And James Kitfield, uh, I've known uh, I've known Jim for a long time. Uh, I had served in the government in the past. He's one of the reporters that we always read, always read. His work is terrific. Um, he knows what he's doing. He gets to the to the heart of a story, and I think as moderator, he's going to really serve a really fine role for us. So, uh, with that, I'm going to ask the three of you to come here and uh, and get us started. We really really look forward to the discussion. Sorry for the late start. Um, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, <clears throat> When Brian called me and asked me to do this, I had to say yes, because ever since 9-11 as a reporter, Brian has been, as Andy said, um, a reporter's best friend, trying to understand this very complex problem of global terrorism. And he was obviously a huge, uh, huge help to me as a reporter trying to understand what had just happened in 9-11. Um, I'd like to start this debate with um, this, this questioning session with two snapshots. In 2008, President Obama um, fresh off his election victory, he decided he went to the National Archives and declared that we were going to end our season of fear in this country. And he described it this way, during this season of fear, too many of us, Democrats and Republicans, politicians, journalists and citizens, fell silent. And to end that silence, President Obama said he was going to close the prison of Guantanamo within one year, to banish torture, to create a new legal regime for counterterrorism that was consistent with the rule of international and domestic law, and to declassify more information in an era of new, uh, renewed government transparency. And he, quote, said, if we fail to turn the page on the approach that has taken us over the past few years, we cannot stand for our core values. And he had a mandate for that. He was freshly, re freshly elected. Um, both him and Senator McCain in 2008 ran promising to close Guantanamo Bay. They ran promising to end waterboarding and what other people considered torture. Um, Flash forward four years, right after Obama was reelected, um, he takes another crack at it. In a seminal uh, National Defense University speech on <coughs> counterterrorism, he had this to say, quote, from our f use of drones to the detention of terrorist suspects, 
The decisions that we are making now will define the type of nation and world that we leave to our children. So America is at a crossroads. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle or else it will define us. We have to be mindful of James Madison's warning that, quote, no nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. So how are we doing on ending the season of fear? Guantanamo Bay remains open six years after he promised to close it within one year. You could argue that government surveillance is as robust, if not more robust today than it was in 2008. President Obama has claimed the authority to have a targeted killing program, including against American citizens, where we, the executive acts essentially as judge, jury, and executioner. The Obama administration itself has charged more whistleblowers with the Espionage Act than all of his predecessors combined. The last election, uh, president, Republican presidential candidates defended the use of waterboarding and other enhanced interrogation techniques. And Congress has put every roadblock he possibly could in front of um, the president in trying to close Guantanamo. And this year, we've claimed another war in the war on terror against the Islamic group, uh, the Islamic State. And polls show that Americans are more afraid today than they were in 2008. They are more supportive of things like Guantanamo. So we, as a country, are still afraid. So I'm going to start with this question to my two panelists here is, what are we getting wrong here? Is there something about our countries and this, and this conflict that we are getting wrong in a way that we can't seem to get back to some sort of level of normalcy? And I'll start with you, Admiral, and then you, Brian. With me? Yeah. Sure. You You're the guest. That, uh, Brian will take the... Okay. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the way I see it, it's... Uh, <clears throat> you, you quoted the, the American president. You did not quote our prime minister, but it's, uh, I believe that should be something very similar. Um, our prime minister was elected on the basis he will win terror. So uh, it's, I'm saying it because I don't think that we should blame our leaders. I don't think that the blame should be on our prime minister or the American president. I think that it is much more complicated. And in a way, the title of, of our program and our joint venture is uh, the challenges uh, for a liberal democracy facing asymmetric conflict or fighting terror. Uh, is beyond presidents and, and prime minister. I, um, I, I liked very much something that Brian wrote under the title of uh, incremental tyranny. And, um, and, and saying something about the fear. Um, in a way, um, the, I, I used to, to, to call it the, the double effect of fear. Uh, we know that the whole, the whole idea of, of, of terror is to terrify us. They don't think that they can kill all of us or they can conquer America, not even Israel. And the idea is to destroy our society by creating fear. Um, now, uh, they're using you know, the media, probably we shall discuss it later, but you know, it's in, in, in a rational reality, uh, administrations should understand it and, and should do everything in order to reduce the level of fear. But all liberal democratic administrations are doing something totally, totally different. They are creating more fear. Now, the question is why? Uh, the, the, the answer is very simple. First of all, you know, it's, there are some... I, I, I was the, the director of the Israeli Shinbet and then the, the commander of the Israeli Navy. I had to create an apocalyptic scenario in order to be financed. Uh, so there are organizational issues, but beyond. Uh, the administration should create fear or to double the fear because administration should recruit us, the people. Unless they will recruit us by creating fear, we shall not approve the budget to the defense. Uh, in the Israeli case, we shall not send our youngsters to fight this kind of war. So in order to do it, administration is doubling the fear. Now what we see, and this is, I want to finish by going back to incremental tyranny. When we face a fearful society, and this is a reality in America and in, in, in Israel, uh, democracy lose. Because the daily problem of democracy is the tension between Security and human rights. A fearful society 
will prefer security and will give, will give up on this nonsense idea of democracy. It's a who, who needs it? You know, we, we, we have to secure ourselves. Now, the paradox, I remember when I was 13 years old, I did not have bar mitzvah. But I was growing in a kibbutz, a socialist community. My father gave me a book. He said, you have to read it. 1984. <laughs> George Orwell. Happy bar mitzvah. Right, right. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. And he said, you have to read it, and I will ask you about it later. The reality in 1984 was the fear projected top down. The reality that we see today is bottom up. The society demands security, not the leaders. Because the society, the people in the street will give up on human rights. So some we face a reality in which our leaders, including your president, is much more pragmatic. He really wants to deliver what he, pro- what he wanted, what he promised. He cannot. He cannot because we created a reality. And this is what, what we are trying to understand, the phenomena of what really happens and how to deal with it. Brian, pick up on that, on that thought, but, but take it the next step. Is there something, I mean, terrorism and, and asymmetric warfare is not new, and liberal democracies are not new. Is there something about the way liberal democracies have evolved to where they are today, modern liberal democracies, and the way that terrorism has evolved that has made this problem even more acute, do you think? No, there, there, there are differences. First of all, let me apologize to everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm responsible <laughs> for the delay. Uh, Washington's traffic reflects the political system. Uh, complete gridlock, uh, arbitrary exercise of authority, government shutdown at intersections. Um, but um, the, the, what is different? Look, at every democracy that, that has been confronted with a threat of terrorism changes the rules. It changes the rules to enhance the collection of intelligence. It changes the rules to broaden police powers. It changes the rules in some cases. Uh, it, it creates new domains of crime. It, it, in some cases, it will, it will alter uh, a trial procedures. We have not done all of those things. We have done some of those things. A a nation in emergency does that. That that is not unusual. When the emergency is over, then these authorities, these powers that accrue to the executive under extraordinary circumstances, um, are clawed back by the courts, by the legislature, and the pendulum swings back. the difference now is that we are looking at a situation in which, if not perpetual war, it is calling for uh, a, a, at least uh, uh, the perpetual requirement for security. And the security measures that we are putting in place, and I mean this broadly, everything from the, you know, from airport security to, to NSA activities to intelligence activities, uh, once these are in place, under current circumstances, it is extremely difficult to, to lift them up. Uh, to, to, that, that is seen as incurring real risk. I mean, let's just take for a moment airport security, airline security, as a metaphor. Uh, every event that has occurred, we, we went to full passenger screening in 1973, sensibly. Uh, As a consequence, I can take you through an airport security checkpoint like an archaeological dig, and I can point to every piece of technology and every procedure. Every layer. And and, and say that was 2001 shoe bomber, shoes come off, 2006 Heathrow, Heathrow plot, restrictions on liquids, uh, 2009 uh, uh, Abdul Muttalib, the underwear bomber, uh, full body scanners, uh, and we put these in place. No one has, no one has today any realistic expectation that we will 
ever remove those measures. They have now become a permanent part of the landscape. Now, I, I use that as a metaphor because that is something we've all personally experienced. It's, it's not some obscure government program that it's hard to understand. It's, it's not an NSA metadata. This is something we're not picking that up. And right now there is a discussion because of a possible plotting taking place as we speak that there will be further restrictions and perhaps the abolition of carry-on baggage. Now that, that is under, under discussion at this moment. I don't think we will go that far, but there will be... Like the Grinch who stole Christmas here. Are you kidding me? So, so this is, this is I, as I say, I don't think we'll go that far, but this is it. Now, so what, what's the difference? In part, there is a public demand. In the United States, we have become a society obsessed with risk and increasingly unwilling to accept any risk. We are looking for a risk-free society. And it's not just in the area of terrorism. It is in every aspect, from, from peanut allergies to, to uh, people falling off a, a, a horse at a stable, um, to, to uh, we, are, we are determined to abolish risk from our society. So in part, it's demand. In part, it is, it is fear. Uh, the fear levels in this country obviously were up sharply after 9-11. They declined over time as we came out of the shadow of 9-11. They have recently, in the past year, climbed up again. I'm not sure they will stay up there. The, what, what is the, the recent climb uh, uh, ascent? Uh, the result of it is fears of ISIL, the Islamic State, the videotaped beheadings, and something that quite honestly has been exacerbated by our own leadership. Um, keep in mind, after, after uh, ISIL seized Mosul in Iraq, we had a Secretary of Defense that said, the Islamic State threatens America's interests everywhere. We had a senator who said, we have, the country has never been in greater danger at any time in its history. We had a four-star general say, World War III is at hand. Now, Whatever that was, whatever was motivating that, those comments portrayed on the press in conjunction with the images, that is the creation of a fearful society that is already uh, 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 determined to abolish. Now, the, 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 the long-term effect of this, as I say, one, one hopes that the pendulum swings back. But here's the thesis of the incremental theory. Uh, 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 tyranny. And, and it's the following. When we think of tyranny, we think of the Hollywood version. We think of military coups. We think of men with high-peaked caps and, 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 and Ray-Bans. We, we think of tanks in the streets. And the question is, can a democracy, in a sense, walk itself into a security state that is more legitimate because it is doing so democratically. It is, it is voting this. It would be, I think, incorrect to say that civil liberties have been savaged since 9-11. That's not true. But we clearly have laid the foundation for a security state that under a less benign leadership or a more frightened public could easily propel us into um, a security state. Which is a pretty scary thought, seeing that the next successful terrorist attack could lead to that president, could have the exact scenario that you described. 
Which is so we're one one terrorist attack, one one election away from being a being a very you know scared country again. This is the concern, and the concern is also is that while each one of these measures, I mean, you you mentioned you know an NSA an NSA program, uh, airport security, each single measure is logical and sensible and defensible. But they have a cumulative effect. And so that little by little, what is put into place as an extraordinary measure becomes a permanent part of the landscape. And that becomes the baseline for the next set of measures. And so over a period of time, this can have an insidious, an insidious effect. And I'm not a, uh, I, I don't claim to be a, a civil libertarian. I'm not wringing my hands about this. I'm not squeamish about this. But, but it, it is so difficult in our political system, given the nature of our news media and the partisanship in our political system, it is so much easier to go along with the step that will reduce risk by this much than it is to say, look, what really is the long-term effect of this one plus this one plus this one? That is a hard argument to make, and, 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 and politicians will be politicians. And politicians don't do nuance very well, which is another worrisome thought. Admiral, um, you know, for a long time, when we looked at Israel's targeted um, killing program against terrorists, and I'm thinking Black September, um, we were very critical of that, thought it looked extrajudicial, um, outside the realm of international law. Uh, Didn't take us long after 9-11 to adopt a very similar approach. Uh, I'm curious about this hybrid nature of this conflict, where... Before, it was a law enforcement issue. And you had the FBI would go arrest these guys. You'd indict them. You'd try them, put them in jail. Um, after 9-11, we, we have had a hybrid. It's part war. Um, you know, I have done stories where uh, you arrest a guy you, under, the, under the powers of war. You put him on a warship in the international waters. You question him for as long as you want. And then at some point, you've had enough. You get enough information. You read him his Miranda rights. And suddenly, then he's, he's, a, he's, he's gone from being an enemy combatant to a criminal uh, defendee. Um, very easy for the American people, I think, to get confused about what principles c- are, apply in these cases. So could talk for a second about the challenges of a hybrid conflict where it does have a military aspect to it, but it also has a, a legal aspect. It has, as you mentioned last night, a, a diplomatic aspect. But there's a hybrid nature to this that is always, for me, difficult to get my hands around. Look, uh, <clears throat> I, I, can, I can speak about it for an hour, but uh, I'll, I'll say something very, uh, very short. Um, the first question that we are asking ourselves, uh, what is new? It's, you know, Clausewitz uh, said almost 200 years ago that uh, the nature of war uh, will, will never be changed. It's, uh, people are killing each other for, you know, for... for since the, the beginning of, of, uh, of history, um, for legitimacy, um, for, for territory, for resources. Um, so um, it will be the same, but the character of war uh, will change dramatically uh, with a revolution in culture and technology. I'm saying it because uh, we, we analyze uh, the revolution in, 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 in technology, which is communication, media, internet, and, and of course, uh, the, the cultural aspect of globalization. And we understand that although terror is not a new phenomenon uh, or asymmetric warfare is not a, it is a new phenomenon because of the influence of these two revolutions. And what we see is the changing role, especially, uh, of the battlefield. In the past, um, we met states, and the idea was uh, to achieve a decisive victory in the battlefield and then to move on to dictate the future peace. Now, we understand today that, first of all, um, wars or or conflicts, violent conflicts, will last... um, Brian said 40, 50 years, probably more. I have no idea. It's, it's a way of life. 
So uh, second, we understand that in a way we are fighting in four different fronts or arenas. The battlefield, which is becoming less and less important to the concept of victory. Second, the media fair or image fair. Third, diplomacy and the legal aspects, law fair. I'm saying it because it is a combination of all what we do in order to achieve success. Now, when it comes to legal aspects, um, as an Israeli, as an, as, a, as an Israeli citizen, but uh, as a former director of the Israeli Shin Bet, um, we were lucky. We were lucky because in our case, and it is a very unique case, uh, you will not see it, uh, not in America and not in Europe, our Supreme Court, especially during the time of the president of the Supreme Court, Barack, Aaron Barak. Um, in a way, he kept our limits. Uh, politicians did not do it and will never do it. They have to be elected. They have to respond to the street. And the, and the street is afraid. Right. And they demand more. Uh, but the role of our Supreme Court kept us as a liberal democracy. I remember I was a director of the Israeli Shin Bet in, in, in September 99 when our Supreme Court told us that we have to change dramatically the way we interrogate uh, terrorists. And um, the question is for how long it will be possible. If you ask me, um, I don't have a very good answer. I know that the personality of Aaron Barak, who was born in Nazi Germany and, uh, and suffered in camps, uh, shaped the way he saw democracy, liberal democracy, human rights, and minority rights. And this is why I think that uh, at least I came with a huge sense of urgency. Talk, uh, Brian, talk for a second about the nature of, of this terrorist threat. I mean, uh, after 9-11, you know, before 9-11, Al-Qaeda was, was getting stronger and stronger, and its attacks were getting deadlier and deadlier. Uh, you know, we kept it a law enforcement issue. After 9-11, President Bush declared a global war on terrorism writ large. Uh, since then, I mean, clearly it has an Islamic extremist terrorism <laughs> aspect to it. Um, is it helpful or unhelpful to try to distinguish exactly what terror threat we're, we're facing as, as opposed to lumping it all under the grand scheme of terrorism? Or is it unhelpful because it plays into a narrative of a class of civilizations? Talk for a second about have we gotten that, that balance right in our rhetoric, in our articulation of of what this threat, this is a constant, as you know, uh, battle between the administration and Congress, those who say he, they, won't, they won't call it by its, its, its name. Um, you know, there's others who would say, yeah, you don't want to play right in the narrative they're trying to promote either. So where do you, where do you come down on that? You know, we've, we've been talking about this for the last couple of days, and, and, and uh, the framework of terrorism has become kind of a bucket for, for a lot of different things that we've tossed into it. Uh, if you look at our recent experience in, in, in uh, the Middle East, we have engaged in a lot of different things, all under the general title of counterterrorism, but in each case, very different kinds of, of challenges. And, and, and so therefore, it, it, it really makes sense to disaggregate and look at, at these things separately. I mean, the al-Qaeda we confront today is not the same al-Qaeda that we confronted uh, on 9-11. It has changed. It, is, it has, um, in, in, in some cases, it, it has, uh, the ideology has transcended the organization. There's lots of now uh, little al-Qaeda affiliates. It's more decentralized, more dependent on its affiliates and its allies on its uh, ability to inspire homegrown terrorists. So it has evolved, and, 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 and we have to be mindful of that. At the same time, as it has expanded, it has come under uh, uh, pressure of its own centrifugal forces, 
and it has divided, and there is a major schism now in 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 the broad jihadist movement between uh, between Al Qaeda and uh, the Islamic the Islamic State, and they actually have have uh, they are at war with each other. They have killed thousands of uh, of each other, which is not entirely bad news. Um, the the Islamic State is a different sort of, of, of a foe. The, the fact that they created the Islamic State, um, it, it, it may be a pretension. I mean, it, it, is it really a state? Of course, it really isn't a state. It doesn't have the attributes of, of, of statehood. It has some population it controls. It has some territory. That doesn't necessarily make it a, a state. But nonetheless, the creation of that uh, has electrified uh, Salafi uh, Salafi Muslims worldwide. It's had an extraordinary effect on that. Here are here are people with, uh, and I'm talking about people even in our in our own society. Uh, a lot of these young men, and now increasingly young women who go off to join the jihadist fronts are, 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 are people who do not feel at home in the country in which they reside for personal reasons. These are people in personal crisis. They, they don't, they're not comfortable. And they're really not comfortable in the society. They may have little knowledge of the society from which they came. And in a sense, there is the notion of a homeland for them, a place, even if it is largely pretend. Uh, its behavior, by all international standards, is atrocious. Beheadings, rape, mass executions, uh, uh, murderous a- 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 activity, which it exalts it. And we say this is terrible. And of course, it, it, it is offensive to our values. It is hugely successful for them. These are recruiting posters to angry people who say, we behead people. We are the real thing. And you can, in a sense, vicariously participate. Imagine every insult, slight, frustration in your society, and you can cut its head off. And, and that has enormous appeal, not, not to 99% of the people. It doesn't take 99%. But it doesn't take nine. But to the ones they're recruiting, it is an effective recruiting poster. So when we say, oh my gosh, this is terrible, and it is. This, is, this is, has been so effective uh, for them. Um, I'll tell you, I think I, I, the introduction was very nice. I've been at this for, for a long time. I... I go back and I, I got things wrong in the past. Tell you one thing I got I, I, a lot of things wrong. One thing I got terribly wrong. It's looking at the future of warfare and it's like terrorism is going to go high tech. And I was looking at weapon systems that would become increasingly diffused throughout the world, uh, handheld surface to air missiles and something like that, and saying, we, one of the possibilities we're going to see is, is high tech terrorism. Miss the point. The, the biggest development in the terrorist arsenal has been the internet, the internet, social media, direct access between actor and audience, and if terrorism is theater, and I've always believed that, small cameras. then small cameras, the ability to reach a global audience with nothing in between you, nothing can edit that, and you say, well, yes, the the, you know, the servers can sh- shut them down. As fast as you shut them down, it, they have 500 ways around it. Um, and that has been the, 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 the true development in terms of, of, of terrorist weaponry. And, and I go back to, you know, as, as Lenin said, the most important weapon in the Bolshevik arsenal is film. And, and we're just seeing modern manifestations. That's of that. a good point. So it wasn't weapons; it was 
communication. I'm going to throw open to questions from the audience. I have one more question for each of you. Um, it's the same question. Uh, you both have advised senior leaders in your countries. Your countries, as you have said, are the two countries that have probably dealt more with this problem for longer and, and more intensely than any other countries. If you had a, uh, you know, three minutes with the president and, you, and you, knowing what you know, what we've learned in the last 10 years, and you, what would you advise him in terms of trying to correct a mistake or, or put this on a footing that you think um, it needs to be put on for the long run? Because the trends you describe are trends that are not ones that are going to be reversed uh, anytime soon or if ever. So, well, well, President Obama has an advantage over uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in that Prime Minister Netanyahu is going into an election and President Obama cannot be reelected. Uh, so that is a point in which the president this can... the only advantage. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the president has the opportunity to speak truth. Look, in, in, instead of, in, instead of em, embracing uh, so many of these measures and, and, and going on, I'm not saying he has to change the course. He, a lot of what he does is going to be determined by events. I mean, that's just the reality. It's determined by events. Whatever he... Presidents arrive in office with agendas. Then stuff happens. And after that, it's responding to events. And, and, and I mean, look at President Bush. He didn't, he didn't come in to be the commander-in-chief of the global war on terror. That wasn't, that wasn't what he ran on. Um, but the president now has an opportunity, really, to, to in a sense help bring the country back into line with its own true strengths. And I've said this so many times. I mean, what are, what are, the, what are the strengths of the American people? It, it, it's not what Homeland Security is going to do for us. It's not what the NSA is going to prevent. It is our own courage in this country, our, our own sense of community, our own tolerance, our own self-reliance, uh, our own, in a sense, stoicism. Those are, those are traditional. When we talk about traditional American values, those are traditional American values. And if the president can move this away from not, this is, what the, this is how the federal government is going to prevent this, stop that, help that and instead say, look, this is a courageous nation. The Islamic State is not going to bring down the republic. Al-Qaeda is not going to bring down the republic. Um, Jabhat al-Nusra is not going to bring down the republic. There's only one set of folks in the world that can bring down the republic. That's us. And if, if he could swing it around, and, and that, is, that can be done with rhetoric. And Billy Proplet. And, and, and that's where he has an advantage. He can't legislate it. That, that isn't going to happen. But he can begin to start getting American people to, to, to really reflect, I, th I think, in a way that's useful. I'll let Admiral? You. Piece of uh, advice? First of all, um, I... Uh, the way you asked the question was that both of us uh, gave advices. Uh, in my case, uh, I was never asked to give advice. When I gave advice, it was uh, because this was my role. And most of the time, nobody listened. So, um, again, I'm <laughs> We're listening now. Here's your shot. I'm going to try, but I have to <laughs> remind myself, you know, it's, uh, uh, they are facing two different threats. Um, we discussed it, and uh, I think that Brian mentioned the fact that the terror that we are facing is totally different from the terror that, that America is facing. Our terror is, um, is limited. Uh, they have very, very specific goals, and etc. I'm not going, but um, my prime minister will have to change his policy. It's very, it's very easy to say. It is different to do it. 
But uh, I just, you know, um, and, and I, I'm saying it every day in Israel. Um, we mentioned the revolution in, in, in communication technology. Now, the immediate impact is who is the audience and where can we achieve victory? You have to understand that once the image is transmitted in real, in real time everywhere, now the battlefield is not the area of the conflict. The borders of the conflict are wherever this image is, is watched, which means all the world. The audience who decide who will win this battle are the spectators all over the world because once they see it in real time, and this is the great revolution, they, didn't, they do not see it knowing that it happened a week ago. They know that it is happening now. They participate. Once they participate, they feel involved. Now, they influence the administrations, and they vote in the UN. Uh, the isolation and sanctions that we shall face is because the world is part of our small cornered conflict. Now, in order to win this image fair, we have to win the hearts of, and minds, not of our enemies, of the spectators all over the world. We have to be the good guys. Now, in order to do it, we have to tell them a different story. In order to tell them a different story, in, it's if, if the story that we tell the world is that we are doing everything in order to secure our people and to make sure that in the Middle East we shall create a reality of two states in which the Palestinians will have their own state and we shall have our own state. And in order to do it, we do everything, including fighting in order to secure our people. If this is a story, it will be very clear who is a good guy and who is a bad guy. But we are, must, we are sending to the world a different story. As long as a story will be the present story, we are not going to win. Here, here. Okay. So, uh, just uh, raise your hand. Uh, I'm, you're gonna yeah, so the uh, we are going to open it up to uh, Q&A. Uh, we ask that, uh, just remind you that we are recording, so uh, we ask that you wait for the microphone, and uh, we'd appreciate it if you would state your name and your affiliation uh, before you ask your question. And we'll start right here. Uh, my name is Arnold Moore, and uh, I'm just a private person here, former RAND employee. Uh, uh, one group of people who possibly are less popular internationally than the Israelis is the American oil industry. And I used to work for API. Uh, and we often thought that our, uh, we had to change our story somehow to uh, what we were telling the world so that they would view us differently. But all the advice we got from professionals is that you don't have to change your story. You have to change your behavior. Is that exactly what I said? I don't think that's exactly what you said. I think you said we've got to change our story. And so uh, I, I wanted to, to emphasize that because at least that's the way it came to me. And I think often people think that what they have to do is change their story. Okay, so... <clears throat> I, uh, I was misunderstood. Um, the story that we are sending to the world is that uh, we occupy and we do everything in order to maintain occupation. We are building settlements, etc., etc. Now, to change the story, we can change our story only by changing our policy. So, Sorry, if... okay. Sorry. You, you're violently agreeing here, which is good. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right, we have a question here. Hi, my name's Karen Minicelli, again, a prior uh, RAND employee. 
But I'm very concerned about Israel and concerned about the, the comparisons that have been made between Israel and the U.S. Uh, I, as a layperson, I'm particularly um, enthralled with Ari Shavit's book, My Promised Land, and how the story changing must change for Israel to reach peace. And I wonder whether there's a comparable, um, and whether you feel there's a comparable story change that's necessary in the U.S. in our, um, the way we handle the Middle East, the way we're perceived um, before any peace can be achieved. In, in, in terms of the U.S., it, it's fascinating. If we, if we look over the last, um, really since the terrorism became an increasing problem in, in the early 1970s, the bulk of, uh, the majority of the incidents that truly significant incidents that cause crises, I mean, from, from uh, you know, in, including Pan Am 103, the kidnappings in Lebanon, the Tehran hostage crisis, uh, the bombing of Libya, all, all of these, if, if, if we look at, 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 at that, the, the majority of them come out of the Middle East. Uh, and so in response to these events, um, we have become increasingly involved in the Middle East. If you look at our military deployments uh, since, uh, since the end of the Vietnam War, uh, the majority of American military combat uh, deployments have also been in the Middle East. That is not the most advantageous uh, area for, for, for the United States. There are, it, it's complex, it, it, its conflicts are multi-layered, uh, they're, they're complex, there are major issues taking place within the Middle East, Sunni-Shia divides, uh, other types of, of, of divisions, there, there are m- many layers. The United States is at the margin in terms of every one of those. So we are now most deeply involved worldwide in the place where we have the least amount of influence and the highest probability of frustration and failure in, in those missions. So what is the answer to that? We, we cannot easily withdraw from the area. And this is where the United States, the, the United States gets pulled into. It's not, it's, it's not that we're looking for places to assert U.S. authority. The, the, the United States is not naturally uh, 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 comfortable doing this. In, it is in many cases because we are being pulled in by the events or by uh, as a consequence of, of, of local relationships that we are pulled into these, in some cases for reasons that we absolutely have to do it. We have no choice. I mean, for example, you know, the bombing in Iraq began with the prevention of a massacre of Yazidis. And if, if you have the capacity to prevent a massacre, in my view, you have a moral obligation to act. I mean, this is, this is on an international scale. There, on, on, on an individual level, on an international level, there is no way the United States could idly stand by and, and let that go. So we, we're, we're pulled into this area. Now, can we, we, can't, we can't withdraw easily. We just can't get away from this thing. We, have our, we do have an historic and close relationship with Israel. That's not the only reason. Uh, the energy was a major concern historically. That is becoming less and less of a concern. We, we will, sometime in the next, I don't know, 25 years, 20 years, we will, we will be at energy independence. And, and so Middle East oil will be less of an issue. Um, we nonetheless... Um, even though we may reach energy independence, our allies in Europe are still heavily dependent on energy resources from that area. And so that becomes an indirect U.S. interest. There is, there is no easy way. The, the, res- the answer to this, and it, this ain't easy, by the way. I, I, wish there was, I wish I could tell you that we should withdraw. We can't. 
or, you know, we have to send in more troops. And, and that's not the answer. That's not the answer either. But one thing we have to try to deal with is our involvement has been entirely reactive, largely without broader strategy. And we're like one of those 1930s movies of the French Foreign Legion endlessly marching up and down sand dunes for another fight here and another fight here and another fight here. And that's what the Foreign Legion does. But that's not what the United States ought to do as, as a thing. So I think we really have to rethink this one and say, what, what really are our interests and what are we willing to invest to achieve those? And that becomes part of a broader strategic question. What does the United States want to be in the world? Can I, can I just add to that, too? That, you know, there is a deep, deep understanding after uh, 10 years of conflict, especially among the senior military leadership in this country, that they can't shoot their way out of this thing. And the, prob- the linchpin right now, I mean, ev- everyone's watching what we're, who we're bombing and what we're doing in Syria. The absolute linchpin was getting rid of Maliki in, in the government in Baghdad and seeing a government emerge there that will be inclusive to Sunnis, Shias, and Kurds. If it doesn't happen, it's a fail-safe. It will not work. And the military, the people who keep driving this home to me. So that's one lesson we've learned is that you can't lead with, your, with the tip of the spear. You've got to lead with your diplomacy. And, um, and if that fails, you will fail because the military cannot rescue uh, you know, a situation where the, basically the Sunnis and Shias cannot live together. Thank you very much. I'm Ali Dodd Mafinezam with the West Asia Council here in Washington. I'd like to follow up on the last question and to say that uh, we're talking about asymmetric warfare and the response that democracies would or could have to it, whereas, in fact, we should be talking about what is going on in the Middle East because even if you look at the Muslim world, which goes all the way into East Asia, we don't have a problem in Indonesia or Malaysia uh, or or even uh, farther uh, west in Africa. The problem is a West Asian or Middle Eastern problem. And therein, there are a few countries that are at the very core of this issue that we're dealing with. And I, I think Iran is perhaps close to the top of that list. And in fact, I grew up there, and the term terrorism is really something that gained currency in the 80s. It was used before in the preceding decades, but it was only after that revolution and the suicide bombings and the car bombings of the Iran-Iraq war and Lebanon and so on. And so I'd like to ask you how you think we might have Israel on side to have some kind of opening where Iran sees as a nation its future as something that could be harmoniously designed, if not as an alliance with Western countries in the U.S., at least in some kind of a symbiosis with the U.S., and whether that could be something that would benefit Israel's security as well, whether Israel, as well as other U.S. allies like the GCC countries, but especially Israel, whether we could think of it as a win-win-win in this case. Thank you. Teed up for you, Admiral. Look, um, we we can discuss many issues, you know, uh, all over the world and and specifically uh, many problems that we have in the Middle East. I I will be very happy to do it, but but this is not what we are doing in our research. But okay, I I will not leave you without without an answer. Look, um, as far as I understand the Middle East and... I'm not sure I'm an expert, but I am living in the Middle East for the last 70 years, so I know something about it. Uh, A major conflict, or the major conflict, is a Sunni-Shia conflict. You mentioned Iran. Um, Leave Iran aside. If I understand the Middle East, there are three players who are looking for dominance. Iran, Turkey, and Egypt. By the way, Saudi Arabia, with all its resources or religious influence, never saw itself as 
uh, you know, n never had aspirations to dominate the Middle East. Once you give the role of friendship with America, Israel, and this kind of alliance, immediately, immediately, you confront Turkey, a uh, majority of the Muslim states and societies which are totally Sunni, and Egypt. Now, we are solving one problem. We create at least two others. So it is complicated. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you what should we do, because although I have my ideas, but again, this is not, you said it, it is not the subject of liberal democracy facing asymmetric conflict. It is a problem, international problem, regional problem. We should discuss it. Uh, but I just gave you the example of solving one problem, creating two others, and going next. Okay, thank you. We have to cut it off here. Uh, we're over our time by almost 10 minutes, so I appreciate everyone coming out. Sorry we had to start a little bit late, but it was a great discussion. Thank you, just gentlemen. I just want to thank everyone. Let's have a round of applause for our guests. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.